Hey, Merry Christmas, as Pastor Kirk said, as Lucas said. Are you excited? You got all your shopping done? Charlie and I went yesterday, and it was a madhouse. It was nuts. So uh, I'd say never again, but it'll probably be the same thing next year. So Charlie, the Saturday before Christmas, that's not the day to go out. But hey, Merry Christmas, glad you're here. Uh, One thing to remind you of, tomorrow night we have our Christmas Eve service, 6 p.m., and I hope that you make that uh, part of your family tradition at Christmas, and we'd love to see you guys here, and uh, any of your other family maybe who's in town tomorrow evening, 6 p.m., and we'll be taking an offering tomorrow night then too for uh, our India orphans, uh, the boys in the boys' orphanage over at Jehovah Nissi in India, so uh, providing uh, a new shirt and a pair of pants and shoes and some candy for them. That's their Christmas gift we give to them each year, and uh, so we'll take an offering for that tomorrow night. But this morning, uh, we're in a series called Eternal Son, and we're looking at descriptions of Jesus, the one who's born at Christmas, uh, in the New Testament letters. And so uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1 today. I'm going to suck on a cough drop, so if you hear some, some of that, you'll know what's going on. It's me. But that way, at least I'm not hacking. So let me pray, and then we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1. Glad you're here today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thanks for your goodness and your grace to us. And Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose to put on flesh, come dwell among us, live the life we couldn't, die the death we deserve, uh, rise again from death to give us uh, your righteousness and your life. Um, Would you show us that again in in your word today? And Holy Spirit, I I thank you that you choose to use me. I pray you would again, and that we pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Uh, He would draw our attention uh, anywhere but Jesus. So uh, turn our sights and our hearts there, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1. This is another just great uh, Christological passage. In other words, a passage in the New Testament about Jesus, about Jesus Christ. So, These first three verses, let's read. It says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen? Amen. Hey, here's what we're going to see this morning. First off is that Jesus is God's word to us. Jesus is God's word to us. In fact, in John chapter 1, uh, it, it begins, the, in the beginning was what? Do you remember? John 1, 1? The Word. And it's a title that John uses for Jesus. And it says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's describing Jesus as a member of the Trinity, our triune God, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, all equal in every respect in terms of their deity. And Jesus, the Word, was with God with the Father and the Spirit, and he is and was God. He was there at the beginning. And Hebrews 1.1, the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke 
to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke. Friends, we have a God who speaks, who speaks to his people. Isn't that great? Isn't that good news? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a bummer if we just had a God where we never really knew what he was thinking, we never knew what he expected, we never really knew who he was that never spoke? Theologically, this is, this is revelation. This is God revealing himself. The God of the Bible, because he is the only living God, is a God who speaks. In fact, when God describes idols in the New Testament, when Paul describes them, he describes them as uh, things that don't speak. They're just pieces of wood with no voice and no way to move and because they're not really God. But God, the God of the Bible, speaks. He reveals himself. And he does this in two ways. You're, you okay to dive into a little bit of theology today? If you're with me, say yeah. yeah. All right. So first, first he does this through what you would refer to as general revelation. General revelation. General revelation is simply the way that God reveals to everyone, to all people, that he exists. That's general revelation. It's, um, he's revealing himself to people in a general way. Sometimes you might have heard me refer to this as generic revelation. Because it's just, it's to everyone. Everyone gets it. Sometimes it's referred to as common grace. Well, how does God reveal himself to everyone? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. He does it a lot through his creation. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter, nine, chapter 1, verse 19, he says there's no excuse to not believe that God exists, that he is clearly revealed in a general way that he exists to everyone. He writes this, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You can't look at creation. You can't look up in the sky on a clear night and see the stars and not have a sense that there's a designer and a God who created it all. In the same way you can't look at something big and think that, you also can't look at the human body and, and dive into the intricacies of DNA and everything else in our bodies of how we're made up and not conclude that there's a designer behind it all. God's clearly revealed the fact that he exists. That's general revelation. Now, it doesn't matter who you are, you matter to God. He reveals himself. All people matter is how we like to say it, right? Well, there's also, though, not just general revelation, but special revelation. If general revelation is generic revelation, special revelation is specific revelation. This is how God very specifically reveals to us who he is and how he accomplishes salvation for us. This is very specific. It's the, it's the details of the who and the what and the how of God. He doesn't just stand off at a distance and make us guess what he's like. He, he actually speaks to us and tells us what he's like. It's pretty amazing. Uh, general revelation isn't enough to save someone. That's why we need specific revelation. We need, people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ to know who God really is. And it, it God's special revelation, some specifics come in many ways, right? His, he reveals his name, Yahweh. I am. He, he reveals that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah. 
He reveals that uh, Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. He gets specific, doesn't he? In Acts 4, verse 12, there's no name under heaven by which men must be saved other than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty specific, would you agree? Now here, th- this is where some people tend to go, they were with me during, yeah, I look at the stars, I, you know, I see that God exists, but then when you start to get specific, they go, eh, I don't know, I don't know. They're good with a general idea of God, most people are. When you try to get specific and name Jesus as God, all of a sudden, people get their feathers a little ruffled, don't they? And usually it's because of their wrong perceptions of God that they've made in their head. Sometimes good, and, or not, re- not really not good when you think about it, that, that God is just tolerant of everything and he doesn't have any standards. That's kind of a wishy-washy God. Or, or a bad idea of who God is, that they think he's just uh, you know, this guy in heaven who, who is just mean and wants to kill all our fun. And so when you start to reveal who God really is, the specifics, they, they get a little ruffled. Well, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here that, that when he says that long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, he's saying the great news is we have a God who doesn't just reveal himself generally, but specifically. He reveals himself very specifically, in a specific way. Look at this, long ago he does this. This is who God has always been. He's always been a God who speaks, not a God who's silent. In fact, from the, listen, from the very beginning, he can't make it three verses into Genesis without saying, uh, and God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Our, our God's a God who speaks. He, he speaks directly to people. He's always been speaking at many times, the writer of Hebrews says. Think of all the times in history that God has spoken. From the very beginning, when he created everything, uh, to speaking to people specifically. I just have a really brief list just off the top of my head, not specific, or excuse me, not comprehensive. Adam and Eve, he speaks to Adam and Eve. He speaks to Noah, he speaks to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He speaks to Moses. He speaks to all of God, all of his people at Mount Sinai. When Moses gets the 10 commandments, go back and read that, Exodus 20, and then again in Deuteronomy. When God speaks the Ten Commandments to Moses, did you know it says literally that he spoke them in the hearing of all the people? So if you were there as part of God's people that came through the Exodus and Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, you got to hear God's literal voice. He spoke to Joshua, to Samuel, to David, to Solomon, to the prophets and through the prophets, to Zechariah, to Mary, to Joseph. Do you know he speaks to you and he's spoken to you? He's spoken to you through his word. See, Peter says, uh, this verse says that, that, that God spoke it many times in many ways through the prophets to our fathers, right? Well, guess what? We have the prophets written down. Peter says that we have, a, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed in which you would do well to pay attention, he says in 2 Peter 2.19. You have it written down. God's, that's his word to you. God has spoken to you at, at many times. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you see that one in front of you, you can just take it with you. That's yours to take. Or if you know somebody who doesn't, grab one. We have more. We'll fill it back in. Take it. Give it to somebody. He wrote it all down he, in, at many times and in many ways. You know, God spoke in a lot of ways to his people, and he speaks in a lot of ways to us. He spoke audibly to some. 
he spoke through the, he speaks to all of us through his written and inspired word through the Bible. He speaks visually. He speaks through preaching, through teaching. He speaks through the testimonies of others. At many times, in many ways, do you know the prophets? Because specifically here, the writer of Hebrews is saying that God spoke through the prophets. The prophets were pretty creative preachers. They had all kinds of object lessons. Jeremiah did it all the time. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 19, he takes a clay pot and he smashes it to illustrate God's anger at their sin and how God's uh, going to, to destroy. And then Isaiah chapter 20, you want one of the a really weird one? Uh, Isaiah preaches, walks around for three years naked. You, you didn't see that flannel graph growing up, did you? I didn't either. But it's in, it's in Isaiah chapter 20. In the year that the, that, that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashad, it says, that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah saying, go, loose the sackcloth from your waist, take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. He did it for three years as an object lesson to illustrate the fact that God's people were gonna be uh, eventually, and others were gonna be taken into captivity because of their sin, naked and without anything. Thankfully, he hasn't called any of us to do that. But he speaks and he does it in many ways. He does it creatively. But he says in verse two, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. See, God speaks clearly, most clearly to us through Jesus. Most clearly to us through Jesus. As we like to say, it's all about Jesus. In, in the Old Testament, the prophets all looked ahead to Jesus. In the New Testament, everything looks back to Jesus and then ahead to Jesus' next coming. Paul, the, the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, you know, the Bible speaks of all the days from, from Jesus' death, burial, resurrection to his coming again as the last days. So we've been in these last days for 2,000 years. I, I would argue that we're probably in the last of the last days. Now that might mean a, five years, 10 years, a few decades, a hundred years, I don't know. But I think we're racing towards that day that uh, we're gonna celebrate Christmas for the last time and it's gonna be a new advent that we're gonna see Jesus coming again. Well, that'd be great. That'd be good news. He'll put an end to all of the mess of this world. And uh, there's certain things the Bible predicts will happen before Jesus returns. And you know, those things are happening at an accelerated rate. We don't have time to go into all of them today, but I'm just telling you, maybe at some point we can. And, and these things are happening over the last five, 10, 20, 50 years. Like, oh, like pay attention, lift up your head. Your redemption draws nigh, Luke tells us, right? Jesus is coming again. See, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God speaks clearly through Jesus. In fact, Jesus made the point that everything he said and everything he did was what his father told him to say. What God the Father told him. He says in John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, 19, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Again, we see the Trinity here. John 12, 49, I've not spoken of my own authority, but the father who sent me has given me a command, what to say and what to speak. As John chapter one goes on to say, after the word was with God and was there in the beginning, in verse nine, he says, the true light, Jesus, who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He's talking about Christmas. 
He came to his own, to his own people, and they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God speaks clearly to us through Jesus, and he shows himself to us in Jesus Christ. God shows himself in Jesus. Do you you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus. In fact, that's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. In in verse 3, he goes on and he says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know what God the Spirit is like, what God the Father is like, look at God the Son. Look at Jesus. You can see exactly what they're like, exactly who God is. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's all about Jesus. Now, Jesus is God's word to us. And friends, we talked about this for a few weeks now, and we talk about it often, and he is fully God. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear again. He is fully God. See, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And here you see uh, what God the Father does with Jesus, making it all about him, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, I I just, I noted uh, six things I see here that speak to Jesus' deity, that speak to his deity. Uh, First, Jesus is the initiator. He's an initiator, just like God is an initiator. See, in, in the beginning, God created everything. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was Jesus. Maybe you haven't been here the last couple of weeks. Do you know, and did you know, or you're just new to this whole church Bible Jesus thing? You know, Jesus is God. He's eternal. He was there at the beginning. He's the one, literally, who spoke all things into existence. He's the creator of the world. He initiates. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, it tells us in chapter 5, verse 8, that at the right time, while we were still his enemies, God initiated by sending his son to die on the cross for us. Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. He's the one who puts on flesh and is born at Christmas. He doesn't save us because of anything we've done or not done. He He saves us because of what Jesus has done. He's the initiator. He makes the first move. He's spoken, as this text says. See, in the beginning was the word, Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Not only this, but keep reading. Look, he, he's the owner of all things. It says that God the Father has appointed him the heir of all things. Did you know that? It's all about Jesus because it's all his. Your life, your breath, your family, your car, your home, this church, the new bathrooms, aren't they nice, by the way? Did you get to check them out yet? All of it, whose is it? It belongs to Jesus. Who's the senior pastor of our church? Jesus. It's it's all his. He's the owner of all things. In fact, Jesus himself says it. Matthew 11, 27, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Because the Son is the owner of all things. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, one of a number of verses that speak to this. Um, 
he says, uh, there's one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through are all things and through whom we exist and for whom all things exist. Jesus owns it all. We see that he's the initiator, the owner. Keep going in verse two. He's the creator through whom, through Jesus, whom he also created the world. Jesus is the one who's the active agent of creation in Genesis 1. You see this multiple times in the New Testament, including right here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. See, in, in John chapter 1 says, all things were made through him, through Jesus. And without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. So in other words, he's just trying to make his point over and over and over, like, Anything that you see or touch or feel or experience, guess who made it? What's the answer? Sunday school answer? Jesus. Yeah, because in Sunday school, if you don't know the answer, you say Jesus, and usually you're right. So it's Jesus, right? He, he's the creator of all things. For by him, Colossians 1.16, it says, all things were created. Hebrews 2 verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. See, this is... Don't these descriptions sound like God? The one who initiates, the one who owns everything, the one who created everything? Let's keep going to verse three. He's the initiator, he's the owner, he's the creator. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, Jesus has a divine nature. He's deity, friends, he's eternal. Other religions teach that uh, if you're good enough, you can become a God or like God. Christianity is the only one that teaches God actually put on flesh and became man to live the life we couldn't, to accomplish what we left to our own devices can never do, which is live a life pleasing to God. And we're gonna talk about that as we close this morning, that that makes him a perfect substitute for us on the cross. See, he's as, he has a divine nature, He's the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. But he, Jesus, has made him known. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. For in him, Colossians 2 verse 9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God. Jesus is 100% God. And as we saw in the passage last week, he empties himself, right? He doesn't let go, though, of his deity. He remains God. And at Christmas, he, when he's born of a, of a virgin and he becomes a man, he adds humanity to his deity. He's fully man, fully God. Now, living as a man, he just never availed himself to his deity. That's what it means by, in, in, back in Philippians 2, that he emptied himself and didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus lived his life on this earth fully in his humanity to be our substitute. But he never let go of his deity. He never quit being divine. And he certainly wasn't created at Christmas. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses would teach, right? That's an Arian heresy, that Jesus has a beginning date. No. He's always existed, and now he's put on humanity, and now he will be a man, a human forever, as well as fully God. He has a divine nature and a human nature, the exact imprint. And not only this, he's initiator, owner, creator, he has divine nature, he's the sustainer. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
Colossians 1.17, we saw this a few weeks ago. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. If you missed it, maybe go back and just listen to some of those illustrations of how Jesus holds everything together. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. He's worthy as well. This shows his deity. Look at that at the end of verse three. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, when you walk into a room and there's somebody of of great respect and great authority, who gets to sit down? The one on the throne, right? So that makes you guys all the honored guests today because I'm the only one standing. But everybody else stands in the presence of them, right? But what does Jesus do? In the presence of God, he sits down and he receives glory. He's worthy of all honor. In Revelation 5, they're they're looking for somebody in the end who's worthy to open the scroll, the decree of God for the end of time. And there's only one that they find worthy. Who is it? Jesus. That's the right answer every time this morning. Who is it? Jesus. And Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. He's worthy, friends. Therefore, as we saw last week, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is God's word to us and he is fully God. You get it? He's, he's fully divine. And as I mentioned, what he does at Christmas, what happens at Christmas is Jesus in his deity became human to save us. He put on flesh, God incarnate. He became a man. Uh, See, in those last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He's the radiance of the glory of God after making purification for sins. Jesus becomes human so that he can make purification for sin. You ever thought about... uh, Did Jesus really need to be human? Why does God choose this route? Why doesn't he just choose to forgive us? Well, God is just, right? He's perfectly just. In other words, if he's not perfectly just, then if he reneges on his justice, what else is he gonna renege on? He has to be perfectly just. There has to be a penalty for sin. He told Adam and Eve right away in the garden, if you sin, you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Well, Jesus comes then to solve this issue of sin by putting on flesh and living the perfect life that we were designed to live. Who all of us in our sin can never live. But Jesus did. Now he had to be perfectly human. Hebrews goes on later after this passage into chapter two saying that he is like his brothers, like his sisters in every respect, except he didn't sin. So in every respect, Jesus was human. We've talked about his deity. Let's talk about his humanity again. He puts on flesh. He grows, Luke tells us, in wisdom. He was fully human. He cries. He gets hungry. He honors his parents. He, uh, I asked it last week, do you think he ever made a mistake? Is a mistake sin? Not necessarily can be. 
But his dad was a carpenter, right? So this is always kind of one of the illustrations I go back to. If Jesus' uh, dad swung a hammer for a living and then he... I, I, I don't know about you, if any of you guys who are dads, you see your, your, your kids, they want to copy you and do what you're doing, right? Charlie does this all the time. He'll follow me around, and if I've got a drill and I'm doing something, he's got this little toy drill, and he's a little toy tool chest, and he comes along and follows me around. Now, do you suppose Jesus doing that following his adopted daddy, Joe, who swung a hammer, do you suppose he ever picked up a hammer, and when he's learning to hammer in a nail, ever hit his thumb? How many of you ever hit your thumb? Awesome experience, right? I have a feeling Jesus shared that experience at some point with you and with me. He learned these things. He grew in wisdom. That's not a sin. That's just growing as a human being. But he never sinned. He never rebelled. So in his humanity, it would have been a bummer to be Jesus' little brother or sister because whenever Mary and Joseph are like, all right, who made the mess? Who did this? Who disobeyed? Jesus is like, not me. And everybody knew it wasn't him. You couldn't point to him and go, I think it was Jesus. I didn't do it. No, 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 it wasn't Jesus. He never never sinned, friends. He lived the life Adam and Eve were designed to live, that you and I were designed to live, but that we can't because of our sin. And so he had to be human because God declared that there's a penalty for sin, that we deserve death, and ultimately we deserve not just physical death, but spiritual death, where we pay the penalty for our sin in hell for eternity, suffering under God's wrath for sin. Now, if Jesus is going to be my substitute and pay that penalty for me, he has to be a perfect substitute, doesn't he? If he's not a perfect substitute, not just in terms of his righteousness, but in terms of his humanity. If he's not a perfect substitute, he can't be a mediator for me. He has to be human. He became human so that he could save us. See, the word became flesh. He dwelled among us and we've seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead through Jesus in his humanity. So why did he become human? To be our perfect mediator. You know what a mediator is? Mediator is somebody who who intercedes, an intercessor. And so Jesus is a dual mediator. He's God's mediator to us, revealing God's grace and love and goodness to us. God's spoken to us in these last days. How was it in verse two? By what? By his son, by Jesus. And Jesus is also our mediator to God. He represents us to God. But he doesn't represent us in our sinfulness. He represents us in his obedient righteousness. And so now when God looks at me, because Jesus is the mediator, he's the one in between, who does he see? He sees Jesus. And so what does he see if you put your faith and trust in Jesus? He sees you as clean and as pure and as holy and as righteous. It's been credited to you. And Jesus as the mediator, then when I look to God, because he's God's mediator to me, who do I see? I see Jesus. Because he's the one who's stepped in between. And so if I want to see God, Jesus says, if you've you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the mediator. Friends, Christmas isn't just about gifts, but it's about a huge gift. That Jesus Christ has put on flesh and died in your place on the cross 
in, in Josh Weiland's place, because Josh Weiland deserves hell. I deserve to be punished for my sin and to be under God's wrath. But God, in his grace, you know what grace is? It's undeserved favor. In his grace, he sent Jesus who put on flesh, who died in my place, lived the life I couldn't, and to be my mediator with God. And that if I would simply believe and trust and, and confess him as Lord and as my savior, now when God looks at me, he sees the mediator, he sees Jesus, and I'm made right with God, and I'm pure, and all of his righteousness is credited to me, and all of my sin is credited to Jesus, for which he dies and pays the perfect penalty for on the cross. That's the good news of Christmas. And because we know that God kept his promise to come and do that for us, we can trust him that he's coming again to fix this mess once and for all. And so if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you need to know when we say you are loved at the end of every service and on the sign, there's gonna be a huge one on the front of the building here in another month or so. Do you know what it means? It means you're loved by the God of the universe who put on flesh to take your place. Would you trust him? And if you know him, let's live out that identity, amen? Let me pray. We're gonna sing about Jesus as our mediator and we're gonna call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us. Thanks for uh, Jesus being the mediator between God and man. As your word says in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter two, so there is one God and one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, in your humanity, you, you make purification for sin for us. Lord, I pray for those who've never trusted you that maybe this Christmas would be the Christmas they receive the greatest gift they ever could. Jesus, your, uh, your grace and your power to save. For those of us who have, Lord, help us to reflect on that and enjoy it and revel in it this year. Lord, we love you. We thank you. You're coming again. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.